Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, June 11, 2020. The New York Times front page tells it all. Folks, if you're listening to this podcast two years from now, this is what was going down in the world uh, today as I do this interview. Uh, here's one headline. Ex-judge attacks Flynn reversal as gross abuse. Good God, Michael Flynn uh, and uh, William Barr trying to get him off the hook. Uh, that's what the headline is regarding there. Here's another headline. Troops shaken by war taxic- tactics in Washington streets. Of course, they're talking about the showdown that took place a couple weeks ago outside the White House when uh, Donald Trump cleared away the protesters so he could have a photo op. And then, how about this headline? This is something I never thought I would live long enough to see. On Black Lives Matter, the public has quickly moved to the left. Better late than never, I always say. Anyway, uh, those are just some of the topics we'll probably talk about. I spent, D, about 10 minutes talking to our guests about what we're going to talk about. I see these headlines. I go, oh, my God, I want to talk to them about that. Uh, as we always do on the Ben Jarofsky Show at bonus time, I ask my distinguished guests to introduce themselves, and I have two distinguished guests uh, to introduce themselves. So I'm going to ask distinguished guest number one, who na- whose name begins with an A, to introduce himself. Absolutely. This is Atiba Buchanan, and I'm the host of the Buchanan and Stephen Show. We air Friday nights on WVON, AM 1690 from 9 until midnight. That's correct. Uh, and a second distinguished guest, introduce yourself. My name is David Seaton. I am the co-host of the Buchanan and Seaton Show, and I am also the author and the creator of SeatonSpeaks.com, which is my blog. So go to SeatonSpeaks.com, elevate your elevate, elevate the conversation. As Atiba Buchanan, David Seaton, a frequent guest on my show, I appreciate you, uh, gentlemen, for making time for me. Can't thank you enough. Very popular guests when they come on the Never show. Never problem. Uh, either individually or collectively. This is the first time, uh, Atiba and David, that you have ever been on the show uh, together over the phone. In the past, uh, we've all been in the studio together at the Sun Times, and I'm looking forward to the day when we're back in that studio. But uh, we're not out of this pandemic yet, so um, we're still uh, in. I'm still in my attic. All right, let's start at the beginning. We'll uh, begin with you, Atiba. This was your idea. You wanted to talk about this one topic. I do too. Uh, I want to talk about it as well. The defund the police movement. I uh, read a headline from the New York Times on Black Lives Matter. The public has quickly moved to the left, and I, I, I have to admit, uh, gentlemen, I am stunned by the transition that has occurred uh, in politics over the last two weeks. It seems like the country 
uh, has moved to the left on this issue. And now we have a defund the police movement. Uh, TB, you had some interesting thoughts about that. Uh, why don't you share them with our listeners? Yeah, my concern as a Democrat and uh, full disclosure, even as a Bernie bro, quote unquote, I have serious concerns, not about the substance of defund the police, because I do understand the nuanced argument, but I do have very serious concerns about the clumsy language of defund the police. Um, when most people hear the word defund, they immediately assume that that means dismantle, that that, that, that means people are calling for no more police. And right now, the, the main thing that Joe Biden needs to do especially having an enthusiasm problem, is went over moderates and independents. And I think the one thing he could do to freeze out moderates and independents, especially in the suburbs, is to have any type of uh, foundation, a uh, presentation of, of th that he is for not having police at all. Uh, and, and I think, and I think he has, he's been smart to distance himself from that language. Um, you know, the, I, I've talked to several people uh, that, that, again, think that the argument is about the substance. Democrats long to be right. And, and we are right on the substance. We do have the moral high ground. But that's not always enough. We still have to be politically savvy enough to win the election. I, I'll just give you this one example and I'm done. When Donald Trump was having a very difficult time getting, the, getting a message to coalesce around the coronavirus because people were beginning to die, they, the Republicans reached out to a PR firm, and the PR firm came back and said, "Call it the Chinese virus," and, and because they understand that that will that that will titillate their base, making it a race issue. That's how their base works. Democrats don't take the time to do that with their messaging. How can you stimulate your base and be inclusive in your message as well? Um, again, we, we we cannot give Donald Trump this. This uh, give me of, of clumsy language around defunding the police when we all see what he's doing with it, going around telling everyone our crazy leftist socialists that don't want police. We can't have people even beginning to, to believe that for a moment. David? You know, I, I, I just want to take a different perspective to, to the question. You opened by saying that you were surprised that the majority of the country is now supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. But it, it actually reminds me of the 60s and the convergence of the civil rights movement and the invention of television. And part of the reason that the civil rights movement galvanized and the support of the American people is because people who didn't personally, personally know black people or if the only exposure that they had to black people of what were the caricatures of black people. And then, then they juxtapose that against seeing Martin Luther King, a very articulate, educated minister who they saw on television, who was leading people, and they were having hoses and dogs fixed on, on them. You know, the cognitive dissonance between the, the image that was presented to white America and what they saw on television were complete polar opposites. And that's what galvanized the, the majority population to get behind the civil rights movement. Fast forward to today, we have the same phenomenon going on where video after video after video comes out. And then you have the convergence of everyone being at home and sheltering in place and not working or a big chunk of people not working because of the coronavirus. 
So now they're sitting at home with the television on all day and they got to consume this information uh, or this video of, of George Floyd being murdered by Officer Derek Chavon firsthand. In the past, when people were going to work, they'd be at work all day, they'd come home, and, and then they'd see snippets on Fox News. But they got to see this happen firsthand. And, and it's, just, it's just been the perfect storm of people being home and, and being able to consume this information. And again, it's the same cognitive dissonance. They seem told that BLM, Black Lives Matter, was this domestic black far-left terrorist organization, then they see BLM come out and support the murder of George Floyd that they got to see in real time. And so again, I think all of those factors kind of playing together. As an extension of that, the defund police uh, you know, model coming out, again, as I thought about it, and I agree with the people that it is, that it is clumsy language and that Joe Biden is strategically positioning himself, himself not to be uh, you know, confined or, or relegated to the far left. We have to be honest with ourselves that no matter what language we put out uh, or whatever language came out of the out of our side of the political argument in 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 defense of doing something, some sort of police uh, reformation, anything that we say on on this side of the argument was going to be rejected, uh, you know, by the far right. So while I agree that defund the police uh, is is a nuanced argument and that most people just respond to it viscerally and say, oh my God, if you get rid of the police, then you know, how are we going to control society? I've seen a lot of otherwise very intelligent people make that argument and respond on social media, much to my dismay. That said, defund the police, it, it didn't, it, we could have said abolish the police or we could have said defund the police or we could have said reallocate funds for the for the Police Reformation Act, or we could have called it whatever we wanted to call it. The right was going to reject it out of hand. So we have to just do a better job of messaging on the left like they do on the right. All right. Now, I'm but gonna, to your point, ahead. and that, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Atiba. Finish your point. My bad. I just wanted to quickly agree with him that he's right when he says that about the right looking, you know, they would have rejected whatever we said, but there is a difference between them rejecting whatever we said and us giving them a gimme. Like that again. There's, you know, to, to say defund the police, that that gives them something to actually. There's a difference in them going out of their way to misconstrue what we say, and then people can see their hypocrisy, versus us giving them something that now seems like they have some credence when they when they come out yelling that we're all lefty, crazy socialist communists. So that you know that that's my that's my particular issue with it. What I like to also add, in agreement with what you said, David, was that. You know, people oftentimes say that, you know, violence isn't the answer. And one thing that is similar in both of these situations with George Floyd and when you mentioned King being assassinated, or that when you, when you mentioned the Civil Rights Act being passed, remember the Civil Rights Act wasn't passed until after King wasn't assassinated and there were six straight days of riots in 110 cities causing $47 million worth of damage. So King didn't live to see the Civil Rights Act being passed. So again, that, again, it's, it's just sad to see that whenever there is change, violence is always the precursor to that change, almost without exception. All right, I would, I would be, I would even go so far. I would even go take it a step further and say, not only is it the precursor, it's the catalyst. I mean, I've actually written a, a blog piece that I'm publishing tomorrow, where I have a, a very deep conversation 
looking at the revolutions of the modern era going back the last two or 300 years, and there's no such thing as a nonviolent, peaceful revolution. Every revolution that has happened in modern times, be it the Iranian revolution, be it the French revolution, be it the American revolution, uh, you know, the, the revolutions that swept through Asia, all of the, all of the revolutions that have created the modern world all came from a group of people who were socioeconomically depressed and who were socially repressed. And they, there was an uprising of those people that was violent. We call them revolutions or we call them revolutionary wars. But the reason that we call them revolutions is because the people who represented the uprising won and they got to write the history. And to date in the, in the United States uh, experiment of America, black people have never been the victors. So our revolutions are always miscategorized as riots and uprisings and other pejoratives. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right. Now, uh, Atiba and David, but I'm going to start with Atiba. I had this discussion about defund the police on Tuesday uh, when Troy LaRabier was my guest, uh, the president of the Chicago Principals Association, and he shared some of your sentiments. He uh, phrased it a little differently, but he had his issues with the phraseology uh, defund the police. And I urge everybody to check out that interview uh, to hear what his thoughts are on it. And after we had that discussion and uh, the show played, I got the following uh, email from a listener uh, responding. And I would love to read this uh, to you, uh, Tiba and David, and get your response to what this uh, listener wrote. So uh, I will now read it. Abolish slavery is such strong language, and it's sure to offend and alienate people, especially slave owners. So those abolitionists should find language that everyone is comfortable with, like subtly adjust a peculiar institution at some point or make lifestyle improvements in perpetual debt bondage. And really, sweeping change is impossible, as the historical record shows. We are never going to abolish slavery anyway. And how can you picture the American economy without it? Be realistic and have a nice day, everyone. And happy 1847 out there. End of quote. That's the response I got uh, from a listener uh, (laughs) after I discussed this on Tuesday with Troy LaRabier. When you hear that, Atiba, what do you think? What's your response? Surely. So, and that, and that she just kind of made the point, um, actually. When you hear the word abolish, when, when people were saying abolish slavery, the immediate assumption is that that means get rid of slavery. That means stop doing slavery. So, when we say abolish the police, in, in most people's minds, that means stop doing policing, get rid of the police. When actually defund the police doesn't really mean that. All it means is taking, it, it means lowering the amount of funding to the police. And, and, and take those funds and put them in better areas to make policing more equitable. Half of the problems that we have in policing is that they are called out to do things that police shouldn't be called out to do. So if we can take that money that we're getting, that we're spending on tanks and use it towards mental health, and now we don't have to call police for mental health crises, that, that's X number of people that, that the police either don't have to beat and or kill a year because they're called on to something they shouldn't be called on. So again, we, she's making the point that we shouldn't use the word abolish because that's not what we mean. We don't mean abolish. We should, we should use something uh, more artful. So that's, that's my perspective. David. No, that's an, that's certainly an interesting point. And everything that the said is correct. When, when we said 
when we were going through the move the movement of abolition of slavery, that's exactly what we meant. Today we're saying defund the police, and we don't mean abolition, but 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 because the the average person, you know, I, I was doing some consulting with on on my website, and I had a consultant tell me that the average American reads at an eighth grade level. And, and, and that's not that I was telling the people this the other day. That's not anything that I would normally say because it would come up, come across as elitist. But that's a fact that the average reading comprehension level in the United States is at an eighth grade level. So when you say these, when you say something as nuanced as defund the police, you have to keep that fact in mind that the that the average person is going to, is not going to have enough. It's not going to be savvy enough to understand the nuance. That said, there is something to being hyperbolic and, and asking for something that is that is so far to the right, so that by the time you get to to, to negotiate with the other side, you wind up being closer to where it is that you want. And that's being one of the brilliant tactics. And I use brilliant in air quotes and air quotes as as I'm as I'm referring to Donald Trump. But that's being one of the brilliant things that he's done is that when he opened his opening salvo when he is coming to the negotiation table, if he asks for things that are so crazy that you know the other side would never capitulate to his demands. But when he go when he comes to the table, he he does that as a tactic. He says, Hey, I wanna I wanna give a one hundred trillion dollar tax cut. And people say, What are you talking about? Are you crazy? We're not gonna give you a one hundred trillion dollar tax cut and then they say, well, we won't give you a hundred trillion. We'll give you five hundred billion. And he says, well, I'll take two bill, or two trillion. And they say one and a half trillion. And then he says, done. And and then he won, but he never wanted, you know, the thing that he was asking for in his opening salvo. So I, I almost think this defund the police is is kind of that tactic that you come in and you say something from your side that is so fantastic mm-hmm. that you know you're not going to get it, but at least the other side then negotiates if you're able to start the negotiation from that point and then you, you're negotiating with the other side, you'll wind up closer to what it is that you want if your opening bid is so fantastic as opposed to going to the opening bid or using as your opening bid something that's more measured and thoughtful. Atiba, any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I think that Again, that that's a uh, that that's a great explanation, and it is certainly possible. Unfortunately, we have an election, yeah. and and again, um, none none of the things that, that you know defund the police with at least you know half a dozen to a dozen reforms, and none of those things are really seriously on the table uh, if Donald Trump wins a second presidency. So we have to we just have to keep we have to put our heads down get through the election, there's going to be some things that we can't really say how we really want to say it for the sake of, again, being politically savvy. Uh, we have to understand the electorate that we're dealing with, and we have to, we have to meet them where they are. And, and uh, I would say, by the way, this is a form of political correctness that doesn't usually get explained much. Uh, political correctness is usually uh, defined in terms of how conservatives cr- crying over the fact that they can't insult uh, I don't know, black people, uh, trans people, gays, overweight people. It's a long list. They can no longer insult uh, people like uh, that they want to insult because the other side uh, will claim that they've gone too far and, they, and the conservatives think it's political, uh, uh, political correctness. This is a, a variation of that. 
you got to watch what you say for, even though everybody agrees that you need it because you don't want to really upset the other side. So I just want to say political correctness uh, cuts two ways. Uh, I got to tell you, Tiba, Troy's a reason uh, I will now do my best to paraphrase his uh, opposition. And he said that the cleverness of the right and he used the charter school movement as an example. The cleverness of the right is they never put what they're seeking uh, in terms of like the real impact. So they're never going to say, we want to privatize the schools. They, they, they term it, uh, they label in terms of a principle. And so in the case of a charter school, it's not privatize the schools. It's parents need choice. It's a principle. And what Troy was saying is that, and he's of the left, so he was saying it about himself as much as anyone else. The left has not figured out a way to capture the principle of what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about in terms of, I actually think Black Lives Matter is a pretty good principle. But do you follow what I'm saying, uh, Atiba, in terms of what Troy's criticism is? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely do, and, and, and I would agree with him. As I was hearing you say that, I was thinking of right to work, right? Yes. Like, right to when work. When you think of right to work, right? Yep. The Republicans came up with that, and, you know, it's like, how, how can you be against the right to work? You almost sound un American if you are against it. And that's not what it means at all. It, you know, it's, it's just an opportunity to defund unions and give workers lower wages and give corporations more power um, and more and take away more privileges from workers uh, and so that people could be worked harder. So again, and, and get paid less for doing. So he's right. The right con- continuously does that. Um, and once again, he, he, I hate to say it, but he's, he's absolutely right. We Democrats do a piss poor job of messaging. And the last time that we did have messaging that worked, cleverly and properly was change you can believe in or whatever, whatever, whatever the two uh, slogans were for Barack Obama in 08 and 12, that was the last time that we've been able to effectively galvanize people around, a, you know, a singular message or cause. And, you know, it's, it's high time that we're able to do it again. David. No, that's an excellent point. Like, and, and we've had this conversation before that, that Republicans masterfully, message in a very in a very purposefully surreptitious way uh, it, it's almost prestidigitation that they show you something in one hand and by the time they get elected you're still looking at that open hand and they say what hand because what they really wanted is one of the implemented in the other hand I, I would go so far however as to say in this particular situation regarding black lives matter that we don't share the same principles on the right and on the left You've heard, you've heard President Trump and his cabinet come out and say, there is no systemic racism in policing in the United States. So how can we possibly negotiate with the other side to a solution when we both don't even agree on? Well, that's a problem. But well, that's, that's, yeah, exactly. And Donald Trump, you know, I mean, we, we've got the discussion right now where you know, the, the idea was brought up to remove all of the 
names of the Confederate judges, I mean, uh, generals from all of the military bases. And Donald Trump said, that, I'm not, that's a non-starter. I'm not even going to, going to talk about it. Not knowing that simultaneously the generals were saying, no, that's a good idea. We need, we need to do that in this moment so that we can galvanize the morale within the military. But Donald Trump is not trying to play to egalitarianism or, or a sense of fairness. All he's doing is doubling down on the strategy that he used in 2016, not knowing that the losses that he suffered uh, in the in the in independence and suburban white uh, educated women and men and so forth and so on, but those losses that he had sustained, there aren't enough of those people that who agree with him to help him win in 2020. Yeah, uh, you mentioned a democratic uh, messaging, uh, Atiba, and, and and it's just a perfect point to make a transition to how uh, Schumer and Pelosi have responded uh, with legislative proposals uh, to the challenges that the country's facing right now. What kind of what's your general uh, sense of uh, how they have uh, been handling themselves in the last week? Well, it's 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 up and down. I'll be honest, I am. I'm just absolutely no fan of Chuck Schumer at all, uh, in so much as uh, he just seems to always be talking to himself. I never, I've, I've never seen Chuck Schumer's political sway, uh, political cachet, sway any argument. Uh, even, even when Democrats were in control, I've, I've never seen that from Schumer. I've, I've only seen this tepid response. Um, that, that really seems, that always seems, it's always the right word, but it's never the right temperament, and people just, for whatever the reason, don't seem to take him seriously. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, does do better, um, especially in the long game. There, there are times that I question her skill set or, or her decisions in the moment, but, you know, given, given the advantage of time and reflection, it's like, okay, maybe that was the right thing to do in this particular moment. I think they. I think the substance of what they're looking to put forward, as far as police reform, is good. Um, and 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 I, again, I just I just think generally speaking, it's time for change. I think I think people want to see the AOCs of the world. Um, the I just want, I think there are so many talented, bright congressmen and con- congressmen and congresswomen that it's just time for a younger shift in in our presentation. David. Oh well, yeah, I think I think I I understand Atiba's I understand Atiba's response, but I would take I would take him back to what he said a moment ago about the defund the police argument and that needing to be more nuanced. Nancy Pelosi has the has the privilege of being more forthright with her ideology because she's a representative of an of a far left constituency. Uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, on the other hand, is a senator elected from New York, which is a very diverse state. And once you get out of New York City, New York, once you get to North New York and you get to West parts of New York, you know, there are parts of New York that are very conservative. So Chuck Schumer has to balance his presentation with that in mind, that he represents a state that is for the most, you know, uh, New York is very much so like Chicago that we're here. You know, once you, you know, Chicago has voted Democratic as a state going back, you know, more than two generations. 
Uh, I think the last time that Illinois voted for, I think the last time Illinois voted for a Republican president was when Reagan won uh, 48 or 49 states. That said, once you get south of Kankakee <laughs> in Illinois, you know, Illinois from Kankakee to Effingham is, is basically a Republican state. So when you are a state representative, you do have to be more cognizant of, of the, of, of, of the populist or the constituency that you're representing. You can still be true to your, to your core beliefs, but you do have to keep in mind that you represent a state that is diverse and, and with, with regard to their political ideology. And that's what probably, uh, that's probably why, or that is why I suspect Chuck Schumer is not, is not able to embrace a more progressive agenda and be more forthright about it. Albeit, he has certainly, he certainly is, is unabashed about being more progressive. Certainly, he certainly, he's certainly not a centrist, but he, but again, he represents a very politically diverse state, and he has to be mindful of that uh, when he's making his uh, presentations, especially when he's making national presentations. Uh, just a timeout for a brief correction. Uh, I'm older uh, than David, and uh, so I remember these things. 1988 was the last time uh, the Republicans, uh, the Republican presidential nominee, won the state of Illinois. That would have been George Herbert mm -hmm. Walker Bush defeated Michael Dukakis okay. in the state, and I was on the losing end of that election. I voted for Mike Dukakis. Let the record stand. Uh, and David, you were probably still in grammar school. So, um, but anyway, your point's well taken. Uh, now there was uh, people were you know when I when I listen to what you were saying uh, uh, Atiba about the generation gap in the Democratic Party I just was listing I just I just on my own just started listing some of the more prominent uh, players in Nancy Pelosi's uh, cadre and I think about uh, Karen Bass the congresswoman from California who is taking the lead on the legislation regarding police reform. She's in her 60s. She's roughly my age, okay? Uh, Val Demings, who was the, the manager of the impeachment pr process against uh, Trump. She's a former police chief from Orlando, Florida. I believe she's at least in her 50s. Um, I'm, trying, I'm blanking right now on the name of the California... Uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the congressman from California. His name just escaped me, who was the most outspoken person, uh, sort of the, the quarterback of the impeachment hearings. Uh, but uh, he's got to be close to his 60s. And, of course, Jim Clyburn from South Carolina, who turned the election around, you might argue, for Joe Biden. I think he's in his 70s. So your point's well taken. It's not a young group that uh, Nancy Pelosi has surrounded herself with. And the AOCs of the world are sort of knocking on the door uh, for entrance. Bell Deming, by the way, is 63. 63, okay. Yeah, she's she's up there too. And, and again, your point is well taken. I mean, the average age of, of Republican uh, senators and and, and, and than the average age that we have of Democrats. <laughs> so, I, I mean, you know, look look at what we have right now, you know, running for president. We have a 73-year-old president, and we have a 17, what, uh, this Biden is 76? Yeah. Uh, you know, and they were, they were the, you know, the, he was on, in my opinion, he was, he was on, and even Bernie Sanders, who was 
number two is you know older than uh, older than Joe Biden. So I think I think there is a, a, a patriarchy that we often ignore in this country that that is that is a reason why Hillary Clinton lost her other foibles notwithstanding. But but there is a patriarchy in this country at the end of the day, which is why Joe Biden can be caricatured as Grandpa Joe, and and you know Bernie Sanders can be you know he's this beloved, uh, unoffensive uh, character who has these far less kooky ideas, but he can still be embraced. And Donald Trump is is, is embraced as this very stern, authoritarian, patriarchal type of character. And, and that's just part of our, our, our culture that we, we associate chrono- chronological age with wisdom, I think. Uh, and uh, by the way, when you, you rattle off the names, I just thought that the interesting thing is uh, we talked a lot this week about uh, Martin Gagino, who is the uh, activist in Buffalo that was pushed over by the police. And he's 75 years old, and the propensity of so many people were saying, that the old man, they kept calling him the old man. I kind of took offense to that because he's not that much older than I am. Uh, (laughs) But I'm like, wait a minute, he's younger. I think he's younger than Biden, Bernie, right? And he's neck and neck with Trump. You know what I'm saying? So uh, interesting. Uh, uh, Age is in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, All right. Uh, Did you gentlemen share the, the sort of disdain that many people had? Uh, for the fact that um, uh, the Democrats Schumer and Pelosi uh, were wearing Kentaclaus at, uh, when was it, Thursday, I want to say, at a press conference. Uh, Twitter lit up with uh, sarcastic and uh, uh, comments about them. I'm Part of me is indifferent. Uh, I understand what it is that they were trying to do. They're, they were trying to use symbology to convey that they were like-minded. Uh, I, I, so from that respect, I, from that respect, I, I, I'm, I'm reserved to judge them too harshly. Mm-hmm. That said, if, if, uh, if George Floyd had been a, a Jewish person and everyone, everyone was wearing a yarmulke, it would be offensive to Jewish people. Yeah. Uh, if, if, uh, if, if, if the, if the person, if George Floyd were a Latino yeah. and everyone came into, and everyone came into the Congress wearing a sombrero, it would be offensive. So that's, that's the part of it that you can show solidarity with, with an ethnicity without appropriating that ethnicity's culture or garb or, or whatever, or, or, you know, doing specifically what they did as an African American male. I'm. I would. It would go. It would go a lot further towards my peace of mind for them to pass relevant, sweeping legislation than it is for them to kneel in the in you know in the uh, in the foyer of the house uh, for eight minutes and forty six seconds with kente cloth on. Yeah. Well, I think there's a struggle going on, uh, and you know, I watch this, and I and again, I. I've been at this for a long time, and I've watched these various phases uh, in race relations in this country, uh, and just uh, that headline that I read at the start uh, start of the show really sunk home on Black Lives Matter, the public has quickly moved to the left. And it seemed like this moment more than any other that I can recall, David, 
Uh, white people have responded by, like, I mean, you can make fun of them. They're trying to be woke. Uh, they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to be symbolically in line. So it's easy to mock and make fun of. But at the same time, I have to appreciate the fact that it is a different attitude. You get what I'm, In 1968, the country's response uh, to the riots in, that consumed so many cities was to either vote for George Wallace or Richard Nixon, who are hardcore exactly. advocates of law and order. So even though it's fun, it's easy to make fun of, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer. I just feel like, well, we're it's a healthier. That's how I view it. It's a healthier sign than what was went down in '68. What's your thoughts? The irony of '68 is that the the civil unrest, and and that that's my preferred language to looting and riots. But the and again, I wrote a piece the other day. When you, even when you look at the psychology, uh, or when you look at the, the sociological, when you look at the, the rioting and looting through a sociological lens, you go back to the riots of 1919. That summer was called the Red Summer in the United States because there were a lot of riots in the country during that time. That's around the time that you had uh, the Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was bombed. And uh, that's the time that there was a young man. There was a young man in 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 Chicago in Lake Michigan. He's swimming in Lake Michigan, and uh, he's floating in the water. He floats over into the white section because they had the lake partitioned, you know, for colors and whites at that time. He floats over into the white section. A man drowns him. He literally in 1919 said, "I can't breathe," and all of the black people who were on the beach see this happen. They reported to the police. The police refused to arrest the white man who murdered the young man, and there was a there were riots in Chicago in 1919. Why? Because of socioeconomic uh, disenfranchisement, and because uh, that we were being murdered by the police, and we weren't being protected and served. Fast forward to to uh, 1968 and the civil rights movement. Same thing in major cities across the country, where you had riots and as a response to Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't the only person who was killed at that time, but he was the straw that broke the camel's back, and he was the catalyst to the civil unrest that ensued thereafter. I think the difference today, like I said, is that you've had an entire generation. You've had Generation Z, and you've had Generation Y, you had Millennial Generation, and Generation Z. You've had them grow up in a time where the narrative around what defines African-Americans and what defines minorities in general has not been controlled by a central media or medium through which most of the United States consumes their information. Generation Z, for the most part, you know, they never see, they, they, they very seldom see, you know, uh, traditional commercials, uh, you know, on television because they're, they're streaming. If, if, you, if all you're doing is watching Netflix and Amazon Prime, you never even see a, a you know a commercial. So but the only time that you interact with African Americans, or if your principal interaction with African Americans today, is through YouTube. The YouTube, uh, the YouTube, and you're following certain people, you're going to have more positive images of African Americans. So the the civil unrest that happened after the George Floyd uh, murder wasn't able to be characterized like it was back in '68. 
the looting and the riot and the rioting that happened in 68, Nixon uh, came was basically able to come out of D.C. We told you, you know, that, you know, this is what we've been telling you all this time. Look at what's going on in these neighborhoods. That's why we need law and order. But, but uh, Trump isn't able to capitalize on that caricature of black people in 2020 like Nixon was in 68. All right. Uh, the polls uh, have been very encouraging for Democrats. I send uh, David Anatiba pretty much every day, it seems like I'm sending you guys uh, stories of, over uh, email regarding how Joe Biden is doing much better uh, than Donald Trump in the recent polls. Uh, I am openly, everybody knows it, from the moment Donald Trump was elected, I've been fighting to make sure he would not get reelected. So I'm encouraged by these polls. At the same time, I always worry about the backlash and uh, white voters who are lying to pollsters, too ashamed to admit that they're voting for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, so I'm always worried about the backlash effect. Uh, we'll start with you, Atiba. What do you think? How legitimate are these polls? What do you think the state of the election is right now? I believe the polls are, are very legitimate. Um, certainly, you, you want to be concerned about individuals that, that may be ashamed to say they're voting for Trump. But I think that's less of an issue the second time around. I think people were more inclined to do that the first time because he was contested and proven. But at this point, his supporters are his supporters, and I don't necessarily know that that people are, are not going. People are not going to be honest about whether or not they want to vote for Trump. Now, you know, I think people are just going to have it out in the open. With that said. Uh, we have to look at, you know, let's look at the most obvious thing, the economy, right? That's what, that usually drives most elections. I think Trump's in trouble. If, if we continue to see what we're seeing, we had a hundred, uh, excuse me, one and a half million people seek unemployment yet again just this last week. Um, we, we are seeing, again, very slow returns to people going back to work. People are in different phases. Uh, and, and most people, most, uh, most of the electorate, view Donald Trump's performance and response to COVID uh, as poor. So, you know, he's, he, in other words, he's responsible for the poor economy. And whether he wanted to be or not, he can't claim it when it's good and distance himself when it's bad. But ultimately, he's losing very heavily on the economy. He's losing very heavily on the COVID, again, response as well. Most people feel like Joe, it's polled. Most people feel like Joe Biden would have had a better response. And at the same time, we have all of this unrest concerning policing. This, this is like a perfect tsunami uh, to, to get Donald Trump out of office, to be honest with you, when you just look at the, the matters of substance. I can't imagine any reasonable, and when I say reasonable, I'm talking about independence and moderate. I can't imagine any reasonable voter looking at what we're looking at under the Trump administration today, which I don't think is going to improve much between now and November. It's going to get worse. I can't imagine anyone looking at this situation and saying, yes, I'd like four more years of that. David? Again, I, I think it's really important that we, that we remember that the polls in 2016 were correct. The polls predicted that Hillary Clinton was going to win by 3.6 to, uh, you know, the popular vote, she won by 2.8. So the, what we're talking about right now, we're, when we're, when we're saying, do we have people who are going to lie to pollsters? That's always been a consideration, and that's why there's a margin of error, <laughs> you know, a margin for error in every poll, because we, we know that it's not going to be 100% representative of what would happen if the same people who were polled 
people actually voting. So that said, Donald, even if you want to ignore the national polls and you just want to look at the polls state by state, Donald Trump is losing in Wisconsin. He's losing in Ohio. He's losing in Michigan. And in, in, in Michigan and Ohio, uh, I know in, in, in uh, Wisconsin, he's losing by double digits and close to double digits. In Michigan, he's losing in Pennsylvania. He's losing in Ohio, uh, 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 Florida. And he's tied or, or tied within the margin of error in Georgia and in Texas. If Donald Trump can't win the Rust Belt state and he's losing in Arizona, and if he loses Texas, if Texas finally turns purple, a Republican is not going to be in office, you know, for another generation. You know, and I know I say that I say that with a, with a grain of salt because we said the same thing after George W. Bush. But these demographic changes that are happening in places like Georgia and Arizona and Texas are things that have been that we that we've known have been coming for decades. And that's why the Republican strategy has been to suppress the vote and voter disenfranchisement and try to make this national conversation about it around an ID because they know the demographic shift that's occurring in the country is going to is going to disallow the Republican Party access to the White House once those demographic changes take hold. I agree with you 100%. The whole Republican strategy, they, the only way they can win North Carolina, Georgia, is suppress the black vote, Wisconsin the same way. You're absolutely correct, David. Uh, that's their strategy. That's what they, that's what they got. <laughs> suppress the black vote. Uh, what a right. heck of a strategy. It, it, seems so, it seems so patently obvious to me to, if you want power, moderate your position. But they know that if they moderate their position, that they're going to lose the far right of the party, you know, those far right voters and those Christian fundamentalists. And that's their only claim to power right now. And and that's and even that's slipping away with Trump. He's losing he's he's down anywhere from five to ten points with even religious demographics. So, you know, the Republican Party is in trouble and I and I think and, and my thought is good for them that they follow Trump over the edge. I hope he takes down and destroys the Republican Party after this election. I'm with you 100% on that one. Atiba, why don't you close down by telling everybody uh, about the show one more time where they can uh, listen and who are some of the, the, the recent guests you've had on and what you have coming forward, coming forth on your uh, VON show. Oh, my goodness, yeah. So the name of the show, again, is called The Buchanan and Seaton Show, where me and David Seaton pretty much doing what we're doing here, chopping it up, going back and forth. Uh, it may not be as, as, as titillating as it was a few weeks ago because now we have to coalesce around the central candidate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't have as much to debate on that front. But nonetheless, uh, we, we definitely, um, you know, we see eye to eye on much, but there's a lot that we debate about. And it's always interesting. We've had some of the most spectacular guests in 2020 alone. Uh, we've had the Honorable Minister Ishmael Muhammad, who is the national uh, assistant to Minister Lutherakhan. He was on the show recently. Uh, we had Cliff Kelly on the show, a Chicago legend, radio host. Uh, we recently had, what was, it, what was the gentleman's name last week, Dave? From the from yes, our MTV. We had, uh, we had Cheryl Dorsey on. She's an ex-LE sergeant, police TV. officer, sergeant. Absolutely. Uh, and she's a repeated CNN commentator. Uh, we had a fantastic conversation with her last night about the riots and just opposing the riots against uh, the Rodney King riots back in the 90s. So, 
I'm trying to think of the gentleman that you're talking about, though. Yeah, I can't either. But we, I mean, again, we, we, we cover national politics. We, we always come local uh, and we try and do human interest stories. And it's, it's just always a great three hours. So please feel free to join us on WVON AM 1690. It's also an radio station. And you can listen to it on WVON.com. All right, very good. Atiba Buchanan uh, and David Seaton. And yeah, Atiba is a, is a just of the two. Uh, David Seaton's been on the show debating lefties for months and months. I think we're going to kind of drop that format because even my lefty friends are starting to <laughs> say they're voting for Biden. Even some of my right. hardcore lefty right. friends are saying, ah, you know, he's going to be the nominee. I hate Trump. I'm voting for him. So uh, we'll have to bring back that debate in 2024, uh, David Seaton. All right, <laughs> gentlemen, it's always a pleasure talking politics with you. Uh, T.B. Buchanan and David Seaton, thank you very much for taking time out and coming and talk to me, all right? Thanks for having us. All right, that's great. T.B. Buchanan and David Seaton. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.